It's good to see you all. Uh, my name is Andrew and I serve as one of the pastors here. And I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures this morning. If you're new to our church, we are one church in uh, what we describe as three expressions. We have our uh, Wallingford expression here that gathers at this time, as you know. And uh, we have an expression in West Seattle that is also gathering at this time. And I want to welcome them as they are tuning in for this portion of the gathering today. And, and then our Edmonds expression gathered earlier at 9 a.m. And we're very grateful for all that God is doing in the life of our church and shepherding us through these recent years that have been quite strange and quite out of uh, focus for many people as a result of all kinds of things. And so we're grateful to God for holding us together, sustaining us, seeing us through that. And as he continues to shepherd us through the world that is and root to the world that is to come, we want to live by faith and the one that we've just sang to and the one that we are singing about this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to grab those, turn them open to Luke chapter 6. And when you get to Luke chapter 6, find your way to verse 12. That's what we'll pick up reading here in a moment. But as you're finding your way to Luke chapter 6 verse 12, I want to share with you one of the highlights of my prestigious athletic career. Uh, it, it happened in fifth grade. I may have peaked early, uh, but in the fifth grade, I was playing basketball for a church league team, and, and my little team was playing in the city championship, and whoever won this game would go to the state tournament, and it was a big deal in our minds, and it was, we were all excited and pumped for the game. Well, the game was close. It came down to the end where the score was tied with just a few seconds left, and my coach called a timeout, and he called me over to him and he said, Andrew, we're going to draw up a play for you. Okay, we're going to set a pick. You're going to come around the screen. They're going to give you the ball at the elbow and you let it rip. And then he looked at me. He said, now, Andrew, make it count. I said, all right, coach, let's do it. And so I ran out there and they ran the play and I got the ball coming off the screen at the elbow and my teammate passed me the ball. And then my best friend who was actually playing for the other team, he came and got his hand in my face, but I managed to get it up and over. Nothing but net at the buzzer and the, the crowd of 30 people went wild and everyone stormed the court. My coach threw me up in the air. It was, it was an incredible moment of victory in my athletic career. The highlight, and I, you know, I played baseball in college for a few years, but this was still the highlight of all of my athletic achievements and uh, I remember lying in bed that night and as I was drifting off to sleep I was thinking about the day I was thinking about the shot that's what it came to be known in my town the shot and uh, I reminded everyone of the shot as often as I could my best friend for years the shot and uh, and I remember my coach's words Andrew make it count Andrew, make it count. And as I was thinking about this passage before us this morning, those were the words that kept reverberating in my mind. And they're the ones that were echoing in my heart. And they're the words that I just want to put before you today. I want to encourage each and every one of you to make it count. Make the time that you have left in this life count for the kingdom of God. Whether the number of your days be long or the number of your days be short, make your days count for the kingdom of God. So that when you leave this life, you can leave in faith. So that when you leave this life, you are bearing the fruit that Jesus promises that his disciples will bear. The fruit of a transformed character that's being molded and shaped into the image of Christ. As well as the fruit of influence that grows as we pour our lives into those around us. And we seek to join Jesus in the mission of making disciples. We want to make our time in this life count. 
Now, if we're going to do that, we need to hear the beat Jesus drops in this passage, this beat that I hope just reverberates and echoes in our hearts and let it become the soundtrack of our lives as here Jesus starts to model what it means to make your life count. He begins to set some things up in his life and ministry and in his relationship with his disciples, setting some things up that would push his kingdom in the right direction. And so you have here, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 6, the words, the passage begins with this little phrase, during those days. Now, some of your translations might just say, and it was at this time. Now, when you read that timestamp, understand that that timestamp is not referring to a specific day of the week, to a specific week of the month, or a specific month of the year. This timestamp isn't designed to keep readers tracking with the chronology of Jesus' life and ministry. Chronology isn't really Luke's concern when he's writing this gospel. And so he arranges materials in ways that promotes the theology that he wants to put forth. And really, he arranges material to present the missiology he wants to put forth. How Jesus is ushering in a new era by establishing his kingdom and how Jesus is going to extend his kingdom through the witness of those who would follow him and be trained by him. So it is during those days, not in reference to a specific day or week or month. This is really a reference to a period of time where opposition against Jesus is intensifying. It's a stretch of life and ministry where Jesus seems to sense that his time on earth is short. We draw this conclusion because we look back at chapter 5, verse 17, and we are introduced to the Pharisees and the scribes, to the teachers of the, law, of the law, the religious leaders and elite that did not think fondly of Jesus, that were not open and responsive to his message. They weren't looking to benefit from his ministry. And and so from that moment on in 5.17, tension just begins to mount as Jesus forces the issue in some regards. And he's challenging the Pharisees' understanding of the law and how they are seeking to apply what it means to be faithful to the scriptures. Jesus is challenging all of this, which is why in the previous passage, Jesus would heal a man on the Sabbath. If you remember last week's story, a man with a withered hand, Jesus brought him, put him in the middle of the room where he becomes kind of a watershed for those who would be a part of this new kingdom that Jesus is building or those who wouldn't be a part of it. And so he brings this man, puts him in the middle of the room and he restores health to his hand, removing this man's shame. But there were others who didn't like that very much. The religious leaders weren't supportive. They accused Jesus of breaking the law and Jesus operated from the conviction that to give life is always better. <laughs> In any moment you have to give life to someone, you should do it. Don't allow a rigid interpretation of Sabbath keeping prevent you from loving people and giving life. To have mercy is better than sacrifice, so to speak. And so Jesus is kind of pressing the issue with these moments that he's having. He's, he knows what he's doing. And then you look at verse 11 of chapter 6 and we're told how everyone responded. We're told that the religious elite were filled with rage. They grew angry. They began to spit in Jesus' direction as they were fed up with what he was saying. And they were offended by what he was doing. So they were filled with rage. And then they began to talk to one another and conspire together to figure out what to do with Jesus. How are they going to take him out and keep him from growing in influence? 
And so it is during those days as this opposition is mounting, it's during those days when this tension is intensifying, Jesus seems to be sensing that his time on earth is coming to a close, that his days are numbered. There's a finish line that he's going to cross very soon, probably somewhere between two, two and a half years from this moment. Jesus would go to the cross and he would die there. And you know that after Jesus was crucified, he then rose from the grave and he spent about 40 more days hanging with his disciples, reinforcing things that he was teaching them and making promises to them. And then there comes a day where he leaves this earth. And he ascends to heaven and he takes his seat at the right hand of the throne of the Father, having established his kingdom through his life, death, and resurrection. Now he's ruling and reigning over all things. Jesus knows that day is coming. And so Jesus seems to now be thinking, okay, my time is short. I don't have long left in this world. How am I going to spend my life? How am I going to make sure my life counts? How am I going to make sure that the lives of those around me are going to make their life count? Because this group of men that we're going to read about here in a moment, these were the ones that Jesus would entrust the agenda of his kingdom to. These are ones who would lead the charge of extending their their understanding of the kingdom of God and extending the story of what Jesus lived for and died for and rose from the grave for. These are the ones who would take that ball and move it forward downfield. And so Jesus wants to make sure they know how to make their life count when that day comes. And so he has all this going on, right? He's thinking about... His time on earth coming to an end. He's trying to figure out how he's going to spend the rest of his days. And the first thing he does, and keep in mind that Jesus is surrounded by needs. People are coming to him for help from all over the place. They want to be healed by Jesus. They want to be helped by Jesus. And so Jesus, there's plenty of needs for Jesus to meet in the world. But notice what he does when he says, during what we're told, that during those days, the first thing that Jesus does is he went out to the mountain to pray. And spent all night in prayer to God. It's a remarkable way for Jesus to start this intensive training time for him and his disciples. Is that he takes the time, despite the sense of urgency that is swelling up in his soul. Despite the mounting opposition and the insurmountable needs surrounding him. Yet Jesus still has the presence of mind to step back and to pray. You know, I don't think you and I are ever lacking the time to pray. I don't think we're ever lacking time to pray. I think we just don't prioritize it. We're led to believe that the pressures of life are too much, that the needs of the world are too many. And if we take time to pause and to pray and to retreat from those needs, we think we're missing it. We think we're not going to make our lives count. But that's not Jesus' example here. Jesus knows that that prayer is essential to making one's life count because prayer helps us to calibrate. Prayer helps us to stay tethered to the purpose for which we are created and the reason for which we are redeemed. Prayer keeps us tethered to those realities. And so he doesn't allow the pressures mounting in his life to push prayer off of his radar. 
And we know this was regular for Jesus. Jesus was a man who prays often. Luke calls attention to Jesus' prayer life time and time and time again. You get into the book of Acts and Luke is calling attention to the church's prayer life time and time and time again. Prayer was routine. Prayer was regular. But it wasn't just routine and regular for Jesus and the early church. Prayer is what they resorted to when life got hard. When the pressure began to surround them, they resorted to prayer. And this is what Jesus is doing here. During those days, he turns to the Father and he prays. He, he does this earlier before he goes and faces the devil's temptations in the wilderness. He spends 40, 40 days praying and fasting. This is what he does before he goes to the cross. The night before he is betrayed and arrested and crucified, he enters the Garden of Gethsemane and there he prays. He resorts to prayer. It was his visceral reaction to the pressures he faced as he journeyed through a fallen world. And we would do well to follow suit to allow the, our visceral reaction to the pressures of life to be prayer. To not feel like we have to tackle every problem and solve every issue the moment they arise when the pressure intensifies. We would do well to hear Jesus here and to see his example of stepping back and praying. And so before he makes some big decisions on behalf of the, the kingdom of God and he makes some big decisions in this passage on behalf of the future church, before he makes these big decisions, he, he prays. And so if we're going to make our life count, one observation I want to put before you and encourage you to consider is that before you face the world around you, take some time to talk to the Father. Before you face the world, talk to the Father. This is how we will make our lives count. Not by feeling the pressure to solve every issue immediately and when urgency swells up within us and feeling like we have to be the fixers of all the world's problems, we step back and we talk to the Father so that he can guide us to handle those well. So he can show us what to do with life's pressures so that he can help relieve those pressures as we cast our anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for us. And we're reminded that he is with us. And we are reminded that he is for us. So before you face the world, talk to the Father. Before you think about the stresses of, of getting married, talk to the Father. Before you think about the pressure of parenting, talk to the Father. Before you engage in socializing and the work that you're doing, before you start making big decisions, take some time to talk to the Father. You are never lacking time to do so. You're never lacking time to pray. And you have a heavenly father whose ear is available to you. You have access to the creator of the universe in any moment that you want. Take advantage of it. Lean in. And before you try to face the world and tackle all the pressures of life, talk to the father about how to do that. You don't want to be a boat without an anchor, just drifting aimlessly offshore. You don't want to be the balloon that, that the kid lets go of and begins to float aimlessly into the sky and the wind is able to push it wherever it wants. You want to be someone who's tethered, who's anchored. Prayer can establish that tether. Prayer can establish that anchor. So you're not just wandering aimlessly through this world, trying to handle life's pressures on your own. You are able to make your life count by handling the pressure with God's help, with God's guidance, 
with God's provision, with God's power. Prayer dials you into those realities. So before we face the world, let's talk to the Father. This is Jesus' example. This is how we make our lives count for the kingdom. Then you look at verse 13. It says, when daylight came, Jesus summoned his disciples. Now, his disciples there is a reference to quite a few. It was a rather large group following Jesus during these days who were learning from Jesus and listening to Jesus. And he calls them all close. And among them, he chose 12 of them. So of all the disciples with him, there were 12 that he pointed out. And these 12, he would also name apostles. These 12 would become the sent ones or the Uh, They'll play a very unique and pivotal role in the establishment of the church in the world. These would be the apostles. And then verse 14, you have them listed. You have Simon, whom he also named Peter. And Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot. Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And so let's think about what Jesus is doing here. He just spent some time talking to the Father before he's facing the the world. And and the first thing he does when he kind of comes back, the sun rises, is he pulls all of his disciples together. And then he identifies 12 men, 12 guys who would serve the church as apostles. Now, the number 12 is important. I think the reason why Jesus is identifying 12 apostles is because he's mirroring what happened with Israel in Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus chapter 19, you have the people of Israel recently redeemed from Egypt. God is establishing them as his people in the world, giving them his law, doing all sorts of remarkable things through this people that God intended to serve as a light to the nations. And so as that agenda was about to be executed, and we know that Israel didn't do a good job, their light did not shine very brightly. But before, at the beginning, when all of that was happening, what did Moses and the leadership do? Well, they identified 12 leaders, or they divided Israel up into 12 tribes. And so that was modeled then. And I think what's happening here, the reason Jesus identifies 12 apostles is because he's establishing a new Israel. His kingdom has come into the world. He's going to establish it through his life, death, and resurrection. And a new Israel will now serve as a light to the nations. So that at the end of the day, when Jesus gets ready to leave the world, he tells these men, look, you guys are going to go and make disciples of all nations. You guys are going to bear witness to me and to my kingdom. A new Israel that would be unlike the previous Israel because the nation of Israel, again, their light didn't shine very brightly. The leaders of that people, the Pharisees and the scribes, the influencers in this era, they didn't do a good job allowing Israel's light to shine because they were too rigidly committed to how they applied the law. And so if you remember the parable from last week about the new wine not fitting in old wineskins, Basically, what Jesus is doing here in identifying the 12 apostles is he's establishing the new wineskins. The new wineskins that he's going to pour new wine into. And these, this new wineskin is going to be able to grow with this new life that he's pouring into them. They're, this new wineskin that isn't going to crack and crumble and, because it's too rigid or because it's too uh, immovable or too inflexible. Because it's too worn out, so to speak. And so here, Jesus is establishing a new Israel and... He's getting ready to advance his agenda in the world and he identifies 12 guys to serve a significant role 
in all that he's doing. And these, two, these 12 guys are going to do some significant things. They're going to bear definitive and authoritative witness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Their witness in writings is going to make up the New Testament. Now, there is one guy not mentioned here that you're going to learn a lot about later in the, in the story of the New Testament. That is the Apostle Paul. He was last to the party because he was the least of them. He, was, he wasn't included in this group at this time. He's going to be brought in later for reasons that, that were necessary and But these guys would kind of be the first movement. These would be the first 12 apostles who would, who were set apart to bring an authoritative and definitive witness to Jesus to the world. Now, what's interesting when you read through the list is that none of these guys were particularly impressive. They weren't rabbis. They weren't scholars. They were mostly blue-collar workers that were likely overlooked by other rabbis and overlooked by other religious leaders in the first century. These were guys that were considered common. You think about their occupation. Four of them were fishermen. One of them was a tax collector. You think about Judas Iscariot. He turned out to be kind of a greedy guy who becomes a traitor. We'll talk about what that means here in a moment. But everybody here, though we don't know some of their occupations, we can say with some degree of certainty that they were commoners. And you get this image of Jesus intentionally ignoring the religious establishment and nobility of Israel to select these guys. Essentially, he's building his kingdom not from the top down. He's building his kingdom from the bottom up. And he's drawing these men to himself and he's setting them apart to play a significant role. Acts chapter 4 verse 13 would describe Peter and John, which implies the others, that these were untrained, uneducated men. They were not impressive. They were not the kind of guys you would handpick unless you talked to your father and he told you to. So all the decisions Jesus is making here, it's blossoming out of the time that he set aside to pray to his father and and make these huge decisions. You look at verse 17. Notice what happens next. It says, after coming down with them, that is all of his disciples and these 12 guys, he stood on a level place with a large crowd of his disciples and a great number of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. They came to hear Jesus and to be healed of their diseases. And those tormented by unclean spirits were made well. The whole crowd was trying to touch him because power was coming out from him and healing them all. So here's what's happening. Before facing the world, Jesus talks to the Father. He comes out of that time of prayer and he starts making these decisions about who he's going to invest his life in in a unique way because they're going to play a unique role in the life of his kingdom. He's intensifying the training of these guys so that they would be ready for the day when he's gone and they're still here. And to do that, he draws them in and he begins to demonstrate the work of his kingdom in front of them. And they begin to see an intensity in Jesus' life and ministry as he's proclaiming the gospel and he continues to heal diseases and he continues to cast out demons. He's doing the very things that, that they themselves will learn to do. And so he's modeling the type of ministry that these apostles are going to engage in. And there are moments where you see the apostles doing similar things as they are being trained by Jesus, preparing them to do the same types of things that he is doing. So what we see now about making our lives count before facing the world, we want to talk to the Father. And then while we serve the world, we want to trust the Father. 
We want to trust his agenda. We want to trust his design. We want to trust his choices and his means. I mean, you think about these guys again. These men, at the time of their calling and at the time of Jesus kind of pulling them in in this way, they, they lacked understanding. There were a lot of things they didn't get. Jesus taught many things that just didn't quite connect in their minds. And guys like Peter would even object to some of the things Jesus would say. Like when Jesus would tell them that he must go to Jerusalem and down the cross, Peter was the first one to say, no, no, far be it from you, Lord. This should not be what happens to you. They're not getting what the kingdom of God is all about. At times they lack humility. At times they operate with much pride. You have James and John oftentimes arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. These brothers who were fighting about uh, who's going to be first, who's going to be the most powerful, who's going to be the most prestigious in the kingdom. You have these moments where they lacked faith, they lacked power. But what's going to happen as you follow their story throughout this gospel and even as you read the other gospels, you're going to see Jesus supplying them with everything they need to make their lives count for the kingdom of God. Jesus, a patient shepherd with them, lovingly correcting them, lovingly guiding them to grow in their understanding, to grow in their humility, to grow in their faith. As you serve the world around you, trust the Father's choices, trust the Father's means. And what that means essentially for us today is that in order to make his life count, do you realize that Jesus' number one strategy, that is the number way... The number one way he sought to make his life count was to pour his life into a small group of people. Now, Jesus could have ministered to the masses. That could have been his ordinary way of doing ministry, and he does minister to the masses at times. But what we see here is the priority of Jesus' ministry. And his priority wasn't so much to go big. His priority was to go small. And to pour his life into 12 guys who would then in turn pour their lives into other people. And they would invest their lives in making disciples, recognizing that people and relationships are premium to making your life count. See, the goal of our lives shouldn't be to become the biggest and the brightest. The goal of our lives should be to invest relationally into the people that God surrounds us with so that we can go deep with them and helping them learn the way of Jesus and helping them live the way of Jesus so that they can turn around and help others live the way of Jesus and learn the way of Jesus. What you see Jesus starting here is this pattern and process of disciple making that would become the clarion call of the church. So that you come to the end of Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 28 and he tells the disciples, Look, I want you to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe what I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And if you feel overwhelmed by that calling, don't sweat it. I'm going to be with you until the end of the day. And so Jesus supplies us with all that we need to make our lives count because making our life count isn't about becoming the biggest and the brightest. It's not about growing big and wide. Making our lives count is about going deep with those that God entrusts us with. So we invest our lives in people. We invest our lives in relationships. We love and serve those around us, helping them discover the way, helping them discover the difference Jesus makes in all of life. And then they turn around and do the same with others and we multiply in that way. So we want to trust the Father's choices and we want to trust the Father's means. How does Jesus 
intend for his kingdom to advance throughout the world? How does Jesus intend for his church to grow in the city of Seattle? Is his intention for us to just host a bunch of big flashy events and call the masses to us? Or is his intention about filling you up with his Holy Spirit so that you can step into the ordinary cross sections of daily life and make your life count by pouring yourself into those around you, sharing the gospel, showing the gospel, discovering the difference Jesus makes in all of life and displaying that for others to see. Now there is a time for us to minister to the masses as Jesus would do at times in the gospels, but the ordinary way he sought to make his life count In the ordinary way you and I seek to make our lives count for the kingdom of God isn't isn't big and wide ministry. It seems to be smaller, deeper ministry as we pour our lives into the relationships that God gives us and grants us with. And so while we serve the world, we want to trust the Father's choices and we want to trust the Father's means and we want to recognize that the Father's choices and means can be surprising Again, these aren't the guys that you would likely handpick unless you talk to the Father about it. Chances are the people God intends for you to invest your life in aren't those that you would handpick unless you talk to the Father about it. And he guides you, opening your eyes to see who you should invest in because he wants you to invest in those that are malleable and teachable, those who can grow with the life that he is pouring into them, which is the imagery we see in the apostles in contrast with the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law. The Pharisees, the scribes, and the teachers of the law rejected Jesus. They would not grow with the life that he intended to pour into them. But the apostles will. Now, they don't get everything right, but Jesus is with them. He's for them, and he continues to help them as they prove themselves to be malleable and teachable. And you think about the people you're going to invest your life in, You want to think about malleability. You want to think about teachability. You want to think about how they respond when you correct them. Do they push back and bail on you because you offered a word that was corrective, perhaps even a rebuke? Or do you find them to be receptive and responsive in a positive way to adjust and to adapt to the things that are being corrected and to the things that are being maybe called out in their devotion to Jesus or in their understanding of Jesus or whatever the case may be. We want to trust the Father's choices. We want to trust the Father's means. And that brings us to the most surprising selection of these guys. You realize one of the guys that Jesus handpicked after talking to the Father about what to do, one of the guys was the very one who would betray him and would kick the ball down the hill, kick the rock down the hill that would lead to his crucifixion the last name listed there at verse 16 is Judas Iscariot who became a traitor and so it begs the question did Jesus make a mistake did he choose the wrong guy or was there purpose in Judas's selection was there a mysterious means to Judas being identified along with the other 11 guys named apostles was there purpose in that selection well I think There's purpose in this selection. I think Jesus is cooperating with the Father's surprising choice 
and the Father's surprising means for how the kingdom of God is going to come into the world and how the Father's will will be done here as it is in heaven. And that the Father is going to work his will and build his kingdom through a guy who betrays Jesus and through a guy who turns his back on Jesus. It's a remarkable thing that Jesus would choose the one who would, who would essentially catalyze his crucifixion. But you find in Jesus someone who's trusting the Father. He's trusting the Father's choice and he's trusting the Father's means even if the choice and means is death. Even if the choice and means is crucifixion. This is why Jesus would say when he enters the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays three times to the Father, hey, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But what did the Father say? The Father said, there is no other way. And Jesus surrendered his life to his Father's will, trusting the Father's choice, trusting the Father's means. And as you and I follow Jesus, there will be times when we trust the Father's choices, trust the Father's means to do that which is difficult, to do that which is hard, to pour ourselves in a relationship where we feel vulnerable and it's possible that we can be taken advantage of. Pour ourselves in the life of another who doesn't respond positively to all the investment that we've made, who doesn't respond with gratitude to the love that we've shown or the generosity we've exercised. They respond instead with ingratitude and perhaps even betrayal. But does that mean we're not making our lives count for the kingdom? No, we're gonna make our lives count for the kingdom because we're trusting the Father as we serve the world around us. This was Jesus' example in this story. This was his example all throughout the Gospels. And then when you come to the end of your days and you, you come to the end of the story of Jesus as told here in Luke, the idea of trusting the means led to him being crucified. But as he died on the cross, what happens in Luke chapter 23, verse 46 as Jesus prepared to leave the world, he turns to the Father and he says, into your hand I commit my spirit. This is making our lives count. Before facing the world, we talk to the Father. Before, while serving the world, we trust the Father. And when, we, when the time comes for us to leave this world, we turn to the Father and we entrust our spirits to him. This is what Jesus does on the cross. This is what 11 out of the 12 guys listed here will do as well. When you think about how many of these guys left this world, they left this world in a way that made their lives and that made even their death count. They entrusted themselves to the Father even then. Just think about some of the stories. You think about James. We're told by some of the early church fathers some accounts of how these men left the world and how they turned to the Father in the midst of it. You take James, for example. A man who was betrayed by a critic in the church who, who wanted to see him killed. And so he told the Roman governors that he was manipulating, or not manipulating things, that James was doing things that they didn't approve of. And so James was brought to trial and he was about to be sentenced to death. And the critic, thank God, had a, had a disturbed conscience about his betrayal. And so he actually comes into the room and he goes to James and he apologizes and the, apologizes and the two reconcile. And the story goes that they were both beheaded right there on the spot. 
They both left this world well, turning to the Father. You think about Thomas, who was killed in India. You think about Simon, who was Simon the Zealot, who was likely crucified in Egypt. You think about Bartholomew, who took the gospel to India, translated the gospel of Matthew for for readers there, him being beheaded as a result of his witness to Jesus. You think about Andrew. You think about the way he left this world, turning to the Father as as he too was being crucified. You think about Matthew, the former tax collector being assassinated essentially by the king of Ethiopia. You think about Peter, whose story is probably the most popular and most famous of them all. Peter who likely died under the Neronian first wave of persecution when Nero sought to kill him and when Peter was going to his death and he saw that Nero wanted to hang him on a cross, he said no. Far be it from me to die like my Lord. And so Nero or his persecutor said, okay, we'll just turn the cross upside down and you can die that way. And in that moment, this one who at one time in his life shrunk in the face of a servant girl asking if he was a follower of Jesus, he rose to the occasion when leaving this world, he turned to the Father. And he died well, making his life count. You think about John. John's story, the one who outlived everyone in the list. John, we are told from some of the accounts of the early church fathers that the second persecution, that is the one after Nero, began during the reign of Domitian, the brother of Titus. And Domitian exiled John to the island of Patmos. Many of you perhaps have heard that before. But on Domitian's death, John was allowed to return to Ephesus around 70 AD. And he lived out his days in the city of Ephesus, uh, overseeing the churches of Asia and writing his gospel until he died about the age of 100. He lived a long life. But one of the things that you might not know about John's story is that as he lived to an old age, many of those decades, he bore many scars on his body. As the story goes that before they, tried to eg- before they exiled John to the island of Patmos, they did try to kill him, and they tried to kill him by boiling him alive. But John lived through it. And so they exiled John for a while, but he got out, he returned, he wrote a book of the Bible, and he did all of that as a man who survived a boiling. With the scars on his body of his ministry to Jesus, he, he lived, making his life count, and he died, he died well. He died well, knowing that his life counted for the kingdom of God, that he had invested his life into that which would last. And so as we think about this dynamic and what it means to make our lives count, when we leave this world, we want to turn to the Father. In other words, we want to go out like Jesus. We don't want to go out like Judas. We want to go out in faith. We want to go out in obedience. We don't want to go out in tragedy and despair like Judas. We want to go out like Jesus. So when the time comes for us to leave this world, will we leave this world well by turning to the Father and dying in faith? There's a guy by the name of C.T. Studd who poetically put it, only one life we have will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You can spend your days doing many things, a lot of which are good, But will you spend your days doing that which will last? Investing your lives in the people around you. Making much of Jesus in word and in deed. 
pouring yourself into people so that they in turn can discover the difference Jesus makes in all of life and so that they in turn can make their lives count as well. We want to live and we want to die well, making everything count for the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to think about our lives well? Help us to see our lives from your perspective. And if there's an area of our lives right now that isn't aligned with your purposes, if there's an area of our lives that you might consider to be um, neglected as it relates to being brought into the rhythm of your kingdom and the priorities of your kingdom, I pray that you would give us grace to correct Help us to repent and to turn towards your way and to trust in you. God, I pray that each and every person in this room, each and every person in West Seattle, each and every person who may be tuning in online right now, I pray that each and every person would make their lives count for your kingdom. Enable us to live for what will last and not to waste our lives on what doesn't. So God, would you supply us all that we need? Would you give us your spirit? Would you give us your power? Would you give us your life? Would you energize us? Would you provide us with wisdom? Would you provide us with faith? Would you give us everything we need to make our lives count for your glory? And so Lord, I pray that before we face the world later today, let us talk to you. God, as we serve the world around us, help us to trust in you. And Father, before we leave this world, help us to turn to you. God, we need you, we love you, and we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.